This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. This operation began months ago. With an indication that his family was moving to Kabul. John Kirby, coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. He said once they saw Zawari's family on the move. We were able to track his efforts to reunite with his family there. And the place they all met up was a house in Kabul. But it wasn't just any house. This was a house owned by the acting, let me say that again, the acting interior minister of the country. And he's harboring the world's most wanted terrorists. Hans Jacob Schindler, the former coordinator for the UN's Al-Qaeda Taliban ISIS monitoring team. Also on this episode, Sean Turner, former communications director for the Director of National Intelligence. What makes this different is that it's unclear who will pick up the mantle now and who will run with it with regard to Al-Qaeda. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP. In Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. Apologies off the top. We were supposed to talk with Douglas London today about a number of topics, including his book, The Recruiter. He's a retired CIA senior operations official. The reason why we had to make this pivot is because the biggest terror strike since Osama bin Laden was killed took place this week. It was the killing of Ayman al-Zawari. And coming up on this episode, we've got it covered from what happened, to how it happened, to what happens next. We start with John Kirby. He's the coordinator for strategic communications with the National Security Council. And I've got to warn you, this audio is a little rough off the top, but it improves as the interview goes on. What led to this strike, led up to this strike on Zawari? There was a period of months here as we were trying to develop uh, the intelligence picture. But, uh, but it started with an indication that, uh, that his family uh, was moving to Kabul. And then, of course, by tracking that, we were able to track uh, his uh, efforts to reunite with his family there. And then, of course, it took several more weeks and, in fact, uh, months for us to uh, make sure that everything that we had been tracking was accurate, that this was, in fact, Mr. Zawahiri, um, and then develop uh, sort of his habits to see if there was even the possibility uh, of an opportunity uh, to take a strike against him. Uh, that information developed, again, over a period of, of, of many weeks, um, and then that led to uh, a, a fulsome set of briefings to the president, um, he had multiple briefings with the national security team about this, which then led to a decision to go ahead and, and, and take the strike that we had enough knowledge, A, it was him, B, uh, that we uh, that we uh, would have opportunities uh, as he went outside uh, his residence or at least onto the balcony. Um, the president was very clear that uh, he wanted an 
uh, us to absolutely minimize the risk of civilian casualties. He didn't want to see civilian casualties uh, with respect to uh, any strike, uh, and so we made the appropriate decisions uh, to um, to be able to conduct it in, in, in that in that way. And we're confident, highly confident, quite frankly, uh, that we got the target that uh, Mr. Zawahiri is dead. Uh, and that no civilians were harmed in the strike. What's the perceived impact on al-Qaeda? This will be a significant blow to al-Qaeda. He was the emir. Um, He was the uh, aspirational and, quite frankly, the operational leader of uh, al-Qaeda. And we know that he had been urging his followers to plot and plan attacks uh, on American interests and the American homeland. So this will absolutely uh, be disruptive to to their plans. There's no question about that. Um, I think it's important to remember that al-Qaeda is a much diminished uh, terrorist network than they were even 10, 11 years ago when bin Laden was killed. Uh, But they are still uh, a terrorist group, and they still uh, seek to kill and and to harm um, and to uh, attack American interests and the American people. So uh, this will definitely uh, disrupt uh, their activity. We will watch closely to see how they react to this. Uh, if past is prologue, they will probably name a successor, and we will we will uh, track that individual as well. Um, it, uh, Afghanistan is not going to be, as the president said, a safe haven for terrorists that want to attack the homeland. He proved that this weekend. Well, the Taliban gave their word they wouldn't allow it to be, but they broke their word clearly. So what's the message to the Taliban? Well, we've been very clear in direct communications with the Taliban that this is unacceptable, that this is a violation of their commitments under the Doha Agreement, and it's unacceptable, um, and that we are not going to shy away, as we did not this weekend, from defending our interest and taking action where needed. John Kirby, coordinator of strategic communications for the National Security Council. Now over to Hans Jacob Schindler. He's a senior director at the Counter Extremism Project for a closer look at how this all took place. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we were joking about the location of Ayman Zawahiri, and I said, I'm pretty sure he's in Afghanistan. I did not expect him to be in Kabul. So taking this man out is indeed a a counterterrorism coup on many levels. I think three major points are important here. First, he was very comfortable, as we discussed at that time, um, communicating. And having him being killed in Kabul, which is 100% under control of the Taliban, in a house owned by the acting interior minister of Afghanistan, Zirajun Haqqani, kind of puts the any arguments anyone may have ever had, whether or not there is a symbiotic relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda to rest. That's the first point. Secondly, it is quite astounding that the American administration seems to have an information network not only to identify him, but also to identify him, as they said, in April, and then decide for the perfect moment for the strike. This means if you have a high-profile target, you do, usually you strike immediately because you don't know if the target is moving, whether you can track it. They knew they had an information network that was reliable enough that they could uh, continue to track him even if he does move. So that is very impressive, I have to say. The third one is it is really a big hit to Al-Qaeda because... Al-Qaeda, as the Islamic State global network, functions on personal buyout. Now, a lot of senior Al-Qaeda members have been dying uh, over the last couple of years, and there's really only a small group left 
who could fit that role, because it's not just about having a figurehead, it is about having a credible figurehead, because as I explained to you in several of our conversations before, the network runs on personal loyalty. So all the heads of all the affiliates of Al-Qaeda need to pledge personal loyalty to the head of Al-Qaeda. And there's not many individuals left who would be that senior and that acceptable around the globe, from Al-Shabaab in Somalia to Abu Sayyaf in Southeast Asia to Jinnim in West Africa to the Islamic movement of Uzbekistan in Afghanistan. So really a very interesting day today, I have to say. And that is a part of what my next question is. You talked about loyalty and swearing the personal buyout. Um, who is in line uh, most likely to be the next leader? Yeah, I mean, the person that everyone is talking about is an individual called Saif al-Adl, himself a Egyptian again. Uh, apparently, according to my former colleagues at the UN, currently in Iran, which is a quite an interesting development. Um and he is the one that everyone seems to assume that is going to be the next one. He's also, while being in Iran, if the Iranians have him under control and would let him leave, this would be a, a very interesting development on the Iranian side as well. Um, but he's close. At least he could come to Afghanistan because there's no other regime that protects Al-Qaeda. I mean, this was a hit in Kabul. We don't know what Al-Qaeda affiliates or foreign fighters are doing in Oruzgan or those foreign fighters that the Taliban have now integrated as special forces in their Afghan military. We have no visibility on that one, right? And that's where the actual attack planning is going to be conducted, not on a balcony in Kabul. Um, the other contender could be a guy called al-Masri, the head of Khuras al-Din, because of course, you know, al-Qaeda in Syria is not doing badly. They have Hayatari al-Sham with Jalani, but he personally had distanced himself publicly after, in inverted commas, asking for permission from Zawahiri to do so a couple of years ago from Al-Qaeda. So he, he's out. But Al-Masri, as the head of Huras al-Din, which is a splinter of uh, HTS, Hayatari al-Sham, could be another proponent. Obviously, the most successful um, foreign affiliate at the moment as far as size, financing, and frankly, military successes is concerned, is either Al-Shabaab, but they don't have any designs beyond Somalia, or Jinnim, the Al-Qaeda affiliate in West Africa, is called, uh, led by a guy called Agali, but he's a Tuareg. And I cannot see the Al-Qaeda network being led by an African at this point, at least. But, you know, this is, this is a momentous moment for Al-Qaeda. It is in, really important to stress, however, that whatever happened in Kabul today will not change anything that happens tomorrow, next month, or next year in West Africa, the Sahel, or anywhere else that these Al-Qaeda affiliates operate, because Zawahiri and his successor will, was and will not be involved in the operational planning anymore. That time is over. Uh, that ended really with Osama bin Laden. Yeah, you talked a little bit earlier about your impress, how impressed you were with the U.S. network, the ability to do what this... What, it was ne what was necessary to, to pull this off. But I'm interested in knowing what you think the message to the Taliban is, and especially Siraj Haqqani. Um, with them now, they have a little bit of explaining to do, right? So, because, I mean, they, um, to be very frank, what they actually ever said, and this is the only thing they ever committed to, is that they will not allow Afghanistan to be used for the planning of terrorist attacks abroad. They never mentioned Al-Qaeda. They never mentioned being separated from Al-Qaeda. I'm not sure what they said in confidence to, to people from the U.S. administration. Right? There's still a discussion whether or not 
they committed to anything uh, on the counterterrorism front here. But I mean, this is the acting interior minister, the chief security officer of the country. This is way beyond Abbottabad. I mean, at least the Pakistani government could say, well, it's the town where we have our military academy, but lots of people live there. What would you know? This was a house owned by the acting, let me say that again, the acting interior minister of the country. And he's harboring the world's most wanted terrorists. I mean, however you want to explain that one away, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing that. And so what kind of consequences most likely will they have to face as a result of this? Because that is enormous. Let's make this very clear. Is your, you know, Department of Homeland Security uh, secretary hosting Al-Saviyeri in his private home and having his son-in-law with him, right? So uh, <laughs> I don't know. What I had, what we had discussed previously is that we had relaxed sanctions, especially on the counterterrorism front with Afghanistan, quite widely in order to make sure that humanitarian uh, uh, funds flow into Afghanistan. I had at the time already said to open the floodgates may have been a necessary measure at the end of last year where you had a real standstill of liquidity flowing into Afghanistan. Luckily, that has been ameliorated to a certain point. I'm not saying Afghanistan doing well, but I am saying having massive amounts of money flowing in and out of the country in order to enable humanitarian aid without appropriate controls is after the day requiring a little bit more explanation than was necessary yesterday. One of the things that the Taliban, Al-Qaeda and other affiliated and associated terror groups have always said is that the Western um, militaries and intelligence communities and agencies, they have the watches, but we have the time. I think that role got reversed here, and I think maybe there is a message in this to them, um, because this is this search has been going on for 20 years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a get of, a little bit off the headlines because of the horrible situation of the war in Ukraine, um, inflation, and other really major concerns, including climate change. But the, the war against terrorism is still going on because these networks have not stopped. It is not like we had a reversal of Al-Qaeda's announcements, quite to the contrary. Uh, Savahiri was continuing to announce before he died um, on, on a regular basis since the Taliban takeover that he wanted to have more attacks. And it really, on, on that point, also a point of caution. Just because Al-Qaeda hasn't conducted a major attack since the Taliban takeover in 12 months um, is not necessarily an indication that Al-Qaeda is not able to do so in the future. If you remember, the Taliban had this symbiotic relationship with Al-Qaeda in the 90s as well. The takeover of the Taliban was 94. The first Al-Qaeda attack was 98, the bombing of the embassies in uh, East Africa. Then they had the call in 2000. Then they had 9-11 in 2001. Their style of terror attacks are long, prepared, spectacular, surprising attacks. On a much smaller scale, we had discussed at the time the Pensacola attack, where the AQAP member was a member of the Saudi military while being a member of a terrorist organization without being recognized for 10 years before he was transferred to America and had the ability to strike. They are very patient because they, they are not really after some sympathizer wielding a knife in the streets of Berlin. That's 
ISIL, the Islamic State. That's their style of terror attacks. Whatever, whoever, whenever, in what, what form is good for them. Al-Qaeda wants to have these spectacular attacks. They take time. We have only left just a year now, in a couple of days. Um, they still have to rebuild their infrastructure. They still have to start planning, thinking up ideas, training operatives. And this is all long term. So we are not out of the danger zone. And while this is now a problem for the network to keep together, um, not more than one Al-Qaeda member died on Saturday. Just one, Sabahiri. All the others are still there. All the others are still after attacks in the West. And we should not keep our eye off the ball or have a sense feeling of security on, on an operational level, despite the quite impressive ability of the US government to obtain information and patiently wait until conditions are perfect for a strike. Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director at the Counter-Extremism Project. You may remember before he took that post, he was at the United Nations and he was coordinator of the UN's Al-Qaeda Taliban ISIS monitoring team. So his knowledge base is very, very deep. Now we turn to Sean Turner, who's the former communications director for the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. And uh, he's got some thoughts on what this means. You know, I think there's a, a lot that we can draw from what we've seen in the killing of uh, Al-Zawahiri. I, you know, I think that the most important thing that we can draw from it uh, relates to uh, U.S. resilience in uh, making sure that uh, no matter how long it takes, no matter what it takes, that we continue to go after those who played any role in attacking us on 9-11 and on attacking Americans uh, uh, over the years that we were engaged in conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you know, uh, as, as uh, your listeners know, al-Zawahiri was the right-hand man of, for Osama bin Laden and uh, had worked closely with Osama bin Laden going all the way back to when they met in 1985 in, in Pakistan. And uh, during that time, uh, he became a convert and, be, and, and uh, began to um, really buy into the philosophy that uh, Westerners, that Americans, Americans were, um, uh, you, you know, need, needed needed to be taken out, and and you know he spent an entire, you know, an entire latter part of his life engaged in attacking Americans wherever we were, and so you know my my thoughts on this day as as, as we look at this is that you know this is a good day for the United States. This is a good day for justice. Um, this is certainly a good day for the current administration, and and I think that. Um, you know, we just have to stay after it because what we have now is a significant amount of uncertainty about what comes next. What are the things that I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, first as a Marine, and then secondly, working in the um, director of national intelligence uh, space for, for a number of years, is the U.S. talks all the time about this over-the-horizon capability that it has. What does this tell you about that capability? What this tells me is that our over-the-horizon capability uh, is as uh, robust and, and as powerful as it has ever been. You know, there's this phrase we like to uh, use in Washington, D.C. Uh, we, we talk about being able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, and as you know, um, you know, there are a lot of things that are going on right now, both domestically and internationally that uh, have absolutely nothing to do with terrorism. In the United States, this administration, our government officials are heavily engaged in managing a number of significant issues. 
But uh, what, what the American people should take from this is that even as we deal with a plethora of domestic issues, we deal with uh, issues related to the economy and upcoming elections and what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, uh, even as all of those things uh, happen, there are dedicated national security officials, dedicated intelligence officials, military officials, who continue to look at and uh, study the uh, threats to, to the United States and to Americans all around the world. They stay focused on those things so that we can all sleep at night. And so what this tells me is that uh, they're doing their job, they're doing it well, and that the decisions that are being made to protect, the, uh, to protect Americans are, uh, are happening uh, even, even as we deal with all the other issues that are going on right now. You know, the fact that he was found in the capital of Afghanistan, there are so many things to unpack when you look at that. I mean, you know, first there's the Taliban's promise that they would not facilitate any kind of terrorist activity, which I don't think anybody believed from the beginning, but this is pretty much the proof of that, that they were engaged in that. Then there's this this, this understanding that the U.S. has the capabilities that it has, and they have to know that the U.S. does have these capabilities, but they either disregarded them or they simply didn't care about them. And I'm just yeah. not sure which it was. And I, I wonder what you think the answer might be to that. Yeah, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said that, um, look, you know, the Taliban was very public about their commitment to uh, keeping al-Qaeda in check in Afghanistan when the United States pulled out back in uh, 2022. But let's be clear, in that time, since that time, what has happened is that uh, al-Qaeda has been able to establish a, a haven, a stronghold in Kabul and uh, the outlying areas. And uh, we know that that's the case because we continue to, to watch and collect intelligence and observe what the Taliban is doing. Uh, you know, when we think about how and why this happened, um, it really does come down to, to human nature. Look, al-Zawahiri al has been on the run since uh, Osama bin Laden was killed. And over the, since 2000, going back to 2011, we have had uh, times when we were able to identify where he may be or get some indication of movements, uh, but it was never enough for us to uh, to conclusively uh, make a decision that uh, that he was there. Now, I should caveat that by saying, going all the way back to 2006, you know, there was an attempt to take him out uh, that failed. But nonetheless, he's been able to uh, you know, to elude, to evade uh, the United States for several years. But ultimately, what happens, and this is the same thing that happened with Osama bin Laden, ultimately, um, complacency sets in. And the U.S. intelligence community is able to do what it does so well, and that is to identify patterns of life, to look at uh, indicators of movement. Um, oftentimes, these individuals believe that they are the target, and so they are the ones who are being watched. But it's always the case that you're not only watching the target and watching the, uh, the armed strongmen around them, but you're watching family members and associates. You're looking for any any tiny bit of information that you can possibly find to give you some indication of where these individuals are and you build a case. And once you have enough information to build that case, that's when you go to customer number one, you go to the president and you say, Mr. President, uh, we, we, we think we've got them. 
And that's what happened in this case. And it was just, it just comes from a lot of hard work, a lot of diligence and human nature because he got complacent. Yeah, he certainly did. So just briefly looking on down the road a bit, um, one of the things that we know about organizations like Al-Qaeda and and certainly the Taliban is that um, time is really, it really doesn't matter to them. I mean, it just pretty much is just, you know, something that they think we Westerners focus on and they don't really care about it. I mean, this is pretty obvious, the, the waiting game. So this strike to me seems to prove that the U.S. and the West play, can play that game too. Um, yeah. But I'm wondering, how will this strike, in your mind, impact, I guess, what they were on the, on, the, on, the, on the brink of perhaps putting back together? And that was a capability to work and operate from, uh, um, I won't say a major city, but certainly a city uh, 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 that's on the map and began mm-hmm. to plot and engage to do things that might harm the West. So how, was it, how will this impact that? Yeah. You know, you know, I've got to I've got to harken back to 2011 when we took Osama bin Laden off the battlefield. Um, what's different today is that in 2011 we knew what we were getting with regard to Taliban leadership after Osama bin Laden was took, taken out. Uh, it was it was clear long before that strike that Ayman al Zawahiri was the natural successor and that he would be in command. And we understood who he was and we understood uh, how he operates or how he operated. Uh, What makes this different is that it's unclear who will pick up the mantle now and who will run with it with regard to Al-Qaeda. And uh, and when it's unclear who the leader will be, that necessarily makes it unclear as to what the strategy will be going forward. All that to say that uh, it is clear that there will be a strategy. It is clear that a new leader will emerge. And it is clear that uh, Al-Qaeda will continue to, uh, to plot and try to orchestrate attacks on, on the West. Uh, it will take some time for us to understand exactly what that looks like uh, and where that will be situated. But uh, based on you know, my experience in, in intelligence and uh, the sort of pattern of life for Al-Qaeda, uh, they won't waste any time in identifying a new leader, but what they will do is exactly what you started with. They will be patient and they will make sure that uh, as they work to put operations in place and to reconstitute, that they do that in a way that uh, uh, seeks to evade the United States and, and our ability to, to, to strike them. And in closing, one thing to point out, this is the end of an era for Al-Qaeda, but there's no doubt they will continue fighting. That's it for this episode of Target USA. Coming up in our next episode, the war in Ukraine. For people living in the West, especially in the U.S., it's important to understand. This is our war. This is not Ukraine's war. Douglas London is a retired CIA senior operations officer. Here's why he says this is our war. This is Putin attacking one of Europe's largest countries, a country that was aligning itself with the West and moving towards a pluralistic society. So what's the Kremlin's end game? Putin is not going to stop there. London says the West has tried everything in the book. We kept looking for 
resets, giving him off ramps, face saving ways. He says the only thing Putin wants is total domination. We'll discuss it. That's coming up on the next episode of Target USA. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. The letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa. jgreen at wtop.com. Also, please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security news, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's called Inside the Skiff, and you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, Cobra Kai fans, come hear what Peyton Liss has to say on Kicking It With The Coves this week. Peyton plays one of my favorite characters, Tori Nichols. Our stunt coordinators came up with a sort of training background for each character. Mm, like, that's interesting. Uh, Tori had done a little kickboxing before, so that kind of came in when I first tried to take on Miguel and why I was cocky enough to think that, you know, I could come in here and I could just make an entrance. Listen to Kicking It With The Coves now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, and wherever you can sweep your leg and get the podcasts. <laughs>